Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledygeek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I'm Eric. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And together, we have worked our way chapter by chapter through the entire run of the award-winning Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. But just because we've run out of animated episodes doesn't mean we're done with the world of Avatar. The Aang Gang uh, has continued in the official graphic novel series from Dark Horse Comics, and we've reviewed all five of the collected volumes released of that so far, uh, with more to come. Uh, but tonight we're taking our first steps into the official continuation series of comics for Korra and her team with Turf Wars uh, Part 1. So we're doing it a little differently this time, as we mentioned on our last episode, um, we for the, for the avatar comics we'd been waiting for the collected library editions uh before we reviewed them uh, however if we wanted to continue if we wanted to do that for cora we were looking at probably a year's wait between uh our last episode and this one and none of us were sure that we wanted to go that long without recording again so we're going to try this one uh doing it uh as each part of the story comes out. So this is part one of three for Turf Wars, and then um, we'll do an episode for each one of those. Uh, and if we feel like there's something worth coming back for, I guess, for the library collected edition, maybe we'll do an episode for that. I don't know, but we'll see how this goes. Uh, some of our some of your hosts here tonight have expressed trepidation in how we're going to pull this off, like what exactly it's going to be like discussing this, uh, just the first part of the larger story. So uh, let's let's not water it down with any of that stupid banter stuff that we try to do. Let's just get right into it and discuss part one of Turf Wars. So this is written... Um, Unlike the Avatar stuff, which was written by Gene Liu and Yang with art by uh, the Japanese art duo Gurihiro, this is written by uh, show co-creator Michael Dante DiMartino, which, um, you know, th that's that's awesome. That is a, a big, you know, thumbs up in its favor. And the artist is Irene Ko, who is a, a woman of color and also uh, she is a she's queer, I believe. Uh, I don't know if she's if she's bi or lesbian, but I know that she identifies as queer. So um, she it's, that's a good representation for the creative side of this book, considering what the story is about. But um, I'm going to go to you guys first. We're all newbies on this, but I don't care. I'm going to throw to you guys first. Who wants to take the first stab at uh, at how you think the shift from Gene uh, Lu and Yang and Gurahiro into uh, DiMartino and Co. Mr. Host, I believe I made a demand that I get to be the newbie on this one oh, since okay. we were doing since we were doing this in a way that I I I'm the host who is remains uncomfortable with doing this um, in pieces after the way we've been doing everything else. So <laughs> we made a trade. Host, I gave last you time. all the clues. That's right. I gave you all the clues. You could have let you could have made me the noob. I gave you all the clues. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Eric, how did you feel then? Um, this is interesting. And I mean, up front, I want to say that I am struggling with exactly how to talk about this because um, it's part one of three. It's not only is it the first time we're doing one of the comics this way, it's also the first time we've reviewed the equivalent of a single episode 
on anything yeah. on the show, even when we were doing it in TV. And even on the smallest number of episodes we've ever done early on, I've actually seen the show all the way through. So this is the first time I'm basically reviewing a single episode of something that I, don't, I have no idea what's coming after. So um, I'm having a hard time figuring out how best to talk about this. Um, I, I'm i interested. I like it. I have um, – it's it's – it's Korra, which makes me excited. I'm actually um, surprised it didn't time jump as much as it did. I think that's actually the first thing that kind of caught me off guard is that I, even reading the description of the plot, I thought we would be coming in a couple of months later. And as far as I can tell, we come in immediately hmm. and then jump maybe a week, I think was the about the amount of time. I, I, wanted, I thought there was like a three week jump at some yeah, point. Yeah, I think maybe. it's three weeks. Yeah. Has it been three? Been vacation. Okay, I couldn't tell because we kind of catch them going into vacation and then deciding to stick around. Yeah. Um, and we get like the like a little bit of a montage of them um, hanging out in the spirit world before they come out. Um, so it's it's weird. It's it's it, I actually in, when you've been away from a, a story for a long time, in some ways a time jump can be your friend because um, you give enough space that you can reorient yourself as a writer while the audience is um, jumping in almost immediately after does mean that you're like trying to connect the dots to the show really closely, yeah. which is hard in a different medium. Um, overall, I think I'm, I think I'm, I like what's going on in this. Um, uh, the weird thing I'm having, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the art a lot because the art style is very different from um, Guru Hero. Um, and there are three factors like I'm like wrestling with on the art that I'd love to talk about in more detail later. Cause I don't have, I haven't quite gotten this sorted out, but so the pencils are obviously very new. Irene Coast pencils. I I think I'm really I think I really like Irene Coast pencil work. That's that's the part that I feel most confident about. Um, but the the size difference, the fact that we're getting it crunched in a little more than we did in the library editions of the other one, mm -hmm. um, is making it a little hard. And it's and it's adding on with the coloring on this book. Um, oftentimes feels a weird, a little blocky and dark. And I don't know how much of that is the printing versus the actual take on the coloring but the mix of the size and coloring made the art feel a little muddier at times um which was not like an art quality thing like it wasn't the style quality of the drawings but the overall effect of it was feeling a, a little muddy in parts of the book so i'm trying to sort that out how much of that is format um or just the a change in things but you know, I'm. I love this crew. I, I, it digs it. I mean, but I feel like I'm reviewing episode one of a 13 episode season right now. I guess episode one through three, maybe, but still. So, so. it's it's interesting. I am not um, new to reviewing a single episode of something when uh, we tackled the final season of Mad Men for uh, Smoke It's in Your Ears uh, when Joe Ken and I did that. Um, we were reviewing the final season each week as it aired. Um, I, I think the difference here is that this isn't just an episode of something. This is the equivalent of like a third of an episode of something because each episode of Mad Men was its own distinct unit, whereas this is very clearly the first act of a three-act story. Yeah, so that's fair. It's, so it's, I think it's, it's a little different. I think we're still going to get plenty of good... Uh, discussion out of it and I, I don't know I, I think what we might be able to gain from doing it this way is that so in the past we've talked about um, 
pretty much each one of the Gene Lu and Yang Guri Hiru Avatar books, we kind of, or at least I know I did, kind of struggled with it first before eventually like coming to to really either enjoy it or or love it. And I think what we might gain here is because we're talking about each chapter as its own entity, maybe we'll get a better understanding of of why of how we feel about the story as it goes along and then maybe and this is just spitballing here maybe we'll be uh, able to even more better appreciate when you know it, it hopefully comes through in the end <laughs> i don't know maybe that was very optimistic of you arlo <laughs> i'm i'm trying dude i'm i'm dying right now so i need all the optimism i can get <clears throat> yeah arlo and i are both sick for those who can't tell at home but um uh yeah. Can I, and just a schedule question when we're, when we're talking about this. We're going to get the next part very shortly, um, like, a, like a month or something. But the third part doesn't come out for like another six months after that, right? Yeah, it's yeah. scheduled. The uh, Part two is scheduled for January, which uh, is less than a month away from the time of this recording. Uh, part three is scheduled for June. So, yeah. Oof. Yeah, there's there's That's a way. Interesting. Uh, when does well, I mean, uh, we'll, part we'll, we'll part have... one came out a while ago. Like we're right. we're kind of late. We're we're not doing this right when it came out, but uh, still, that yeah, it's not August or September or something. I think I think September. Is Avatar going to be running concurrently, or will the next Avatar book only start coming out once Turf Wars is finished? I, I think. They haven't announced a schedule for it, but I don't think they're alternating. Like, I think it's going to run on its own schedule. And it's not going to, like, I don't think they're going to wait for Korra to wrap before they do the next Avatar. So, okay. I mean, I guess there's that. Yeah. So we'll see. But, uh, anyways, I, did you, did you give your first impressions, Arlo? Did I, did I miss it in there? <laughs> what were your first impressions? Um, my first impressions, um, I, I have to agree with Eric in that I really uh, am enjoying Irene Co.'s pencil work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so we were all ginormous fans of Guri Hiru um, and their artwork in the Avatar universe. And so going into this, I had to sort of readjust my expectations. You know, even if the art in this is great. It's not. I mean, it could be as great as Guri Hero. It's just going to be great in a different way, because I think Guri Hero, as we discussed on those shows, that's such a rare example of like a, a comic book adapting another property that manages to perfectly replicate the visual style of that property while still maintaining its own sense of like fluid uh, motion. Um, so I mean that that that. That, that almost never happens. So I was not expecting that going into uh, Turf Wars. And it's a good thing that I didn't because Irene Coe's artwork certainly isn't that. But at the same time, I really like it because uh, I feel like it stays true to the, the world established by the show and to the character designs. But it's also very clearly a distinct artist's perspective. Um, yeah, I, I really like it. I think... Uh, it kind of is a little more, and this uh, this might just be a really ignorant thing to say because I'm not super familiar with manga, but it kind of reminded me a little bit of like manga style artwork at times. Like in particular, that first fight with um, uh, Tokuga, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, let's see, what page is it? I don't... Uh, like 30, 20, uh, 20, Yeah, somewhere around there where he, like... Uh, is is chi blocking and there's like an ex- his his fingers are like an extreme close up and his arms seem like impossibly long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. worth just a, the I would say the art style is not very manga like, but yes, the the action style definitely owes something to to manga's action style. Okay. Okay. Um, good distinction. Um, it, yeah. So I, I I really like that. I think that's a different look for Avatar and for Korra. Um, but I, I like it, and I think she nails all of the characters and their facial expressions. Um, so I, I really like her art. Um, I'm, I'm less enthused about the writing, which is surprising because this is, you know, uh, this is Michael Dante DiMartino, right? Right. Okay, I couldn't remember if it was him or, or Brian Konitzko. Um Yeah, so this is one of the co-creators of the show, and at least, and I, I fully accept that this is the very first issue of what is hopefully an ongoing Korra series, but he doesn't seem to nail his own world nearly as well as as Gene did. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said that. Um... Yeah, so I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be less generous on the artwork than I think both of you were. Um, I like Irene Coe's art. I've seen her art on other things, and <clears throat> excuse me when when she was announced as the art, she was not the original artist announced. The original artist was Brittany Williams, whose art I do like, and I I frankly I would have loved to have seen Brittany Williams do the artwork for this, but but for whatever reason when she was replaced with Irene Co and, and I saw some like early samples of, of what uh, Co was going to do with this, I was excited. Um, I don't, I, I'm not particularly fond of the finished product. And Eric, you raised a, a good point when you were talking about the, the more compressed, because we're reading this in the digest sized uh, format, which we had not done before. We've only read them in the, in the larger uh, digitally remastered uh, library editions before so that will certainly have an effect uh when we get to see the artwork in a in a larger format but uh yeah i'm 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 not i'm not really a huge fan like her her layouts in here you 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 guys were talking about her pencils and i i i guess what i guess i agree with you i i agree with the layout the layout design that she does here but just the finished artwork um yeah, Eric. Again, you said it was muddied, and that that could be an effect well, of the colors, but just the artwork is not my favorite in this at all. Yeah, I want you to take a look. Take a look. Go back and look at the art, the the penciling versus the coloring a bit, because I think it's really important to pull that it apart if we're going to talk about the artwork on this, because they are two different artists, which was not the case with Guru Hero. So we actually do have two, and and we have printing involved too when it gets to color. So, um, and there is something distinctly different going on with the coloring in this um and i think that even on a printing level compared to what we were looking at in the other ones and you know having looked at irene co's pure pencil work for um the this stuff and everything i've seen pencil wise with her work on cora is phenomenal and quite frankly could have stood on its own i i actually i'm wondering what this would look like as finished um black and white drawings Mm -hmm. 
because my suspicion is it would look really great. But if you look at some of the the art, let me hold on. I'm gonna point one out because there's a panel on here that I spent a lot of time looking at, <laughs> like, and it's small. It's on 25. It's at the bottom left corner. Bottom left corner, 25. Okay. With Cora's face. Right. So when I first saw this, I'm like, something. This is the panel that's not working for me, right? Like I was like, something is not happening here. Yeah. And I started looking at it, and the shading is immensely blocky on this. Blocky and weird. Like, there's a little bit of light around her eyes, but there's, like, the shadow is not consistent, but it's, like, really, like, what it's, like, two-toned in its coloring. Like, there's her skin color, and then there's the skin shadow color, and, like, no shading beyond that. I, and Is that the one where she's saying, I understand, you yeah. want to keep all... Okay. All yeah. Right. yeah. Again, it's not horrible, but, like, there is something happening here with the colors that's making it really hard for me to pull it apart from the drawing on it. I don't know. I see what you're saying, but I also I also look at that and see that that's to my eye that's not a particularly good artwork uh, in general. Like that whole page is a little bit indicative of what my issues here are. It seems like I said I've seen Irene Coe's work before, and maybe maybe you're right, Eric. Maybe it is her like her just untouched pencils. I've seen her pencil work before, and. Uh, I feel like she's much better than what I'm seeing here. Um, so maybe this is an, maybe this is the combination of pencils and inks and colors, but I don't know. It just, it looks, it's really, really sloppy. I feel like. Well, well and the reason I bring this up and I think that's, is that um, the, when I've seen Irene's um, like black and white finishes, cause I think she actually does. Um, I don't, I want, I don't want to separate thinking and coloring cause I actually think that she does everything in the black and white side of things just from the artwork I've seen of hers. Um, but she uses very clean lines and that is something that like, I, it doesn't like look like manga artwork in terms of like she has her own style. But like, if you look at the way manga, cause manga is often finished as black and white drawings. It's very little manga that's color. Um, it's very crisp, very clean lines. And if you look at her non-colored work, it has that look to it. And the colors actually re-muddy things. All of, like, the crispness of the artwork kind of gets, like, reabsorbed. And then you combine this with whatever's going on with the printing and the size of it. And what what I think may have been crisp at one point is no longer. So, anyways, it's really hard for me. And, I, and I'm not even want to blame an artist on this because the printing could be part of the problem yeah. here. If they're cheaping out at all on the, the like, printing of the colors... Um, that could be part of it, but anyways, it's it's there's a lot going on that's different in the art, and it's just hard to pull it apart. So I wanna I wanna separate out the things because I actually don't think we know where where our concerns are necessarily stemming from. Yeah, I mean that's fair, that's fair. I I will just say I'm 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 not as optimistic as I wanted to be at this point, but I I have seen Irene Coe's work and I like it, so obviously. She gets two more shots here, at least. I, I have no idea if they've said if she's going to continue on after into the next storyline or not. But uh, anyways, as for the story, uh, Arlo, I'm also glad that you pointed out um, DiMartino's writing here. It's it's a little harder for me to define what feels off about it, but it also felt a little bit off. And I wonder if this is an example, if this is a case of uh, Gene... Lu and Yang so perfectly captured the voice of 
the avatar characters um, that we we were wonderstruck by that. We marveled at how well he pulled that off. And this, I wonder if this is an example of, this is the original, one of the original creators coming in who, as far as I know, I don't, I, I don't know if he's done any comics work before. If he has, it's only been like in the, the short stories or the free comic book day stuff. Uh, I don't, I, he's, at the very least, I'd say he has limited comic experience. So I just wonder if Michael Dante DiMartino can capture the character's voices perfectly when he's writing a script for a television show, but when he tries to adapt that voice into comics, it doesn't come across as well as someone uh, from the outside who has a, a better footing in comics. What do you guys think? That, no, that occurred to me as well, because writing uh, for TV and writing for comics are two distinctly those are two distinctly different mediums and i'm in and there's a lot of good overlap between the two you know there are a lot of tv writers who have written some great comics there are a lot of comics writers who've written great tv but they are very different and the transition between the two isn't always seamless and i think i mean that might be the case here I imagine that it's a lot different, though I'm sure, you know, he consulted with, um, you know, Brian Konitzko and everything. I, I imagine it's a lot different to write a project by yourself r- rather than with a room of writers. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't really mean that as a dig on his writing ability whatsoever, just that some of this felt a little clunky and a little awkward to me. Um and I mean, I think there are some bigger issues that we should discuss. Um, but the one that kind of like the first moment in this book where I was like, oh, wait a second. I'm not sure how I feel about this is when uh, Cora takes Asami to uh, have dinner with her parents. Uh-huh. And, you know, Tanrock and Senna are both very uh, accepting of their daughter's, you know, coming out uh, with, you know, at least as, uh, I mean, I don't think they really coded it in the comics, but, you know, either gay or bisexual. Um, They're very accepting, but, you know, Tonrock cautions that maybe she might want to, you know, not necessarily go public with that and keep, you know, keep her relationship private and Cora flips the fuck out. Yeah. And at a certain point in the show, that would have been consistent with her characterization. But I feel like the Cora at the end of the series, especially after three weeks of downtime in the spirit world, I, I don't think she would immediately, like, literally from panel to panel she goes through a complete like a complete mood swing i i i, I didn't really buy that I, I, so okay i, I wanna, can't, I can't believe i can't believe how how ecstatic i am that you pointed that out Arlo. i thought i was going to be the only person to have that quibble go ahead eric this, this well okay I, I, we're going to have bigger concerns and i want to i want to again this may be a thing where i want to pull apart how we talk about the writing on this a little bit because there's a couple of things but to what you're saying about like where core is as a character i would ask you to think about whether or not, like, after you've grown in other ways, if you don't sometimes show up in, like, 
to have dinner with your parents or your family or something and turn into 10 year old version of yourself in emotionally because they immediately push your buttons. And so someone having a regress moment with their parents in an emotional situation is not out of character at all. That's I mean, pretty I, I, common. Actually, it's the opposite of out of character. I'm hearing what you're saying, Eric, but I don't know the, the the swiftness with which it happens. Literally, in one panel, everything's fine. It's the on page. Panel, it's on page twenty. Yeah, I have been in that one panel to another situation before, <laughs> so I can speak some, from personal experience that I can go from having like thinking over the last year I've grown a lot. I'm thinking this Christmas, like literally I, like yesterday. I am over, I'm on all... over less over less than this. Did I lose my shit in a way I have not lost my shit in like two years? I'm I'm actually oh. on Arlo's side on this, but I have to say that I just went through this. I experienced something like this, one of those one panel shifts uh yesterday, Christmas Day, with with my extended family. So I know what you're talking about, Eric. But uh yeah, again, well, I'm, and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying Christmas. this is I'm not gonna say that the we have character writing things to do, but I actually I, I just want to call that as I don't think that's a good example of the problems that you have. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with all the problems you have, but I actually don't think that's given that Cora is a hothead, given that family situations, especially dealing with the situation they've set up in this. It is really easy to go into lose it mode at that point. Um, and being that we have never seen Cora in this, I don't think we have enough information to know whether this is in character or not. But it is very plausible as a human reaction. Well, you're much more forgiving than Arlo and I were. Apparently, I it's also not a forgiving thing. I just I think that's that is like that is something that I think is just I. Okay, maybe we're maybe I'm still in Last Jedi mode, but this is where we get into like like I'm concerned with people being with like plot holes. Like sometimes it's just that like you're you were expecting something different, and it doesn't mean that the writing is bad in that case. I, I do agree that DiMartino has some problems with comic writing. So, and this may be an artifact of his problems with comic comic writing. So I'm not like going full board defender on this, but well, um, let's. I get, I get issue when things just... like this get criticized. And just to clarify, like I'm not using this moment as like this is what's wrong with this book. It's just that was the first moment that kind of like pinged my whatever radar sense I'm looking for. I don't have the mental capacity to think of something <laughs> clever um, where I was like, hmm, that's an interesting choice. And then there were several more more moments like that throughout the book. Well, let's follow that unidentified radar ping into the next uh, the next logical stage of this, because I, I think it ties into what was my biggest. Okay. So I had read this before both of you and I had commented to you guys that um, when we finally got around to talking about it, I, I was worried that it might get awkward because I was kind of having an issue. I was kind of struggling with something but I didn't tell you what that was. And then I made the mistake of going out and seeing what other people had thought about this. And I'd read, I read a couple of reviews and most always of, a mistake, always a mistake. Most of the reviews I read were positive, And then I stumbled upon one that was, it was overall a positive review, but they had a very serious issue. And it turned out to be largely the same issue I had, although they took it much further. They were much more troubled by it than I was to the point where they wrote, 
they they did the review and they vented their spleens in the review and then they also wrote like a ten thousand page thing after that, uh, which went into ten thousand word. Went even into ten thousand word. Yes, not ten thousand page. Ten. Oh, did I say page? It was not, <laughs> you yeah. did. Okay, it felt like page. Sorry. Anyways, it was not Swan's way. Um. <laughs> anyways, uh, a much longer piece uh, where they they vented even more about it, but um. I don't know if that helped or hurt me, but the issue in question is the the way that this book deals with the Korasami thing, the the Korra and Asami coming out party, basically. And are we gonna get here? Are we get, are we gonna do this part first? Are we gonna start here, basically? What 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 else is there to talk about? Do you, what what? I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little. I just want to clear that I'm a little uncomfortable getting. I don't know. This is this is a the the core. Go ahead. I would say that the core of what we have to talk about in order to talk about this gets into stuff that I don't feel super qualified to talk about. I'm not sure any of us are super qualified to talk about beyond generalities. So I'm I'm worried that we're going to end up um, not not being able to say things of worth other than to restate what other people who do have better opinions on this can say. Anyways, I have concerns on this, this talk, but let's, let's, and I'm afraid that once we go there, there's really nowhere else to go after this, but if this is the important thing to okay. talk about, then let's. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, let, we'll, let's save that till the end then. Uh, and let's talk about the, the rest of the story overall, um, because that particular element of it, like this book picks up literally the moment that we left off on the TV series with Korra and Asami walking through the spirit portal. Uh, but then it does jump three weeks and we get back to Republic city and there's another whole other story going on where we get the title turf wars, where the <clears throat> destruction of the, the city center that we saw at the end of uh, book four of Korra has created a power vacuum and all sorts of different power brokers and agencies are trying to f- rush in to fill that vacuum. Um, so how do we feel about any of that? My, my first question is, does President Ryko do anything but run for office? That's a fair question, and I'm going to say I don't think so. Every single time we come back from like a, it, we, we come from one season to another or now we jump into the comic, it, it, apparently it's election season and he's running for office again. Has he was he run before? I thought we had caught him just after winning in the series prior to that. I, I don't know. It just feels like there's <coughs> we're always paying attention to his numbers. Oh God, you guys talk amongst yourselves. I'm choking. It's it, the, the the having to deal with an election this close after 2016 is tough. I understand, Paul. It's, it's <laughs> a... oh it, God, it, it, it is. Um. But no, that's uh, that's that's a fair question. Um, I'm not sure how. So I understand why Raiko is such. Uh, I mean, is as prominent as he is, especially in a story like this, which kind of demands his presence. But I'm, I, I would say, he he's got to be like, like top five least interesting characters in, the Avatarverse, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't know. There, there's something just very one-dimensional about Raiko that I mean, he, I, I feel like he's at this point he has served his purpose as Koro's foil, um, and I'm not sure how much more 
we can get from having him around. Well, it's, and it's possible that this is the getting rid of Raiko arc, right. basically. Because starting up this soon, it, this is actually one of those things where jumping ahead can be your friend as a writer, because you can just be rid of it. But Raiko was, in fact, president the day that they restarted the story, since they started it on the day that they did. So one way or another, you've got to deal with Raiko somehow, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean we, we meet Raiko basically in that everyone hates Raiko finally so hopefully he's gone he has a negative three percent approval rating and he's running unopposed that's uh that's pretty impressive how the hell do you do that um well so uh, there's a couple things i really like about what's going on in the background of the story actually really so the the other the main thread of this we get a new villain with that takuga takuza takuga and I'm I'm like the one bit of the story that I feel pretty like solidly in the corner of is I'm I'm all in for this villain right now. He's got hook swords, first of all. So <laughs> on a purely kung fu level, a villain with hook swords gets on my good list already. Um, is, he's, this, is this he, uh, is this Jet's grandson? Uh, yeah, he might be. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe we're yeah. going to find out that he's got a, a relation to Jet. Um, Jet didn't actually. Be... Jet didn't actually die. There's there's a lot of ambiguity there. We really aren't sure. Yeah. Um, so I like him in that. I, I and he also and we get his arc ending up with getting like basically attacked by an angry spirit and having and ending up in like, like uh, half monster mode mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Um. So I'm I'm kind of into him as a villain. He actually feels like a very appropriately core villain to me. Or like a small scale core villain. So I don't know. What do you all think of him overall? Uh, well, we didn't get a ton of him, but my my thoughts on him were. Um that i you know i've i've just never been particularly interested in the whole bending gangs of republic city uh and this story so far hasn't really done anything to change my mind but um i do think that tokuga has potential to be an interesting antagonist because he's a non-bender as far as we know apparently Uh, he's a chi blocker um he's got the hook swords which i think are a great thing and now he's got this whole spirit mutation um all of that could lead to him being interesting. I just, I hope that there turns out to be more to him than just he's a two-bit thug that wants to take over the local gangs or now he's just someone who is looking for, you know, petty revenge because he thinks the Avatar is the one that disfigured him. I, I, I don't think there... it's necessary. I don't think it's necessarily petty revenge. Let's give him a little bit of space uh, here. Uh, okay. okay he, he, well... he did get turned into a lizard face guy at the end of this. <laughs> Which actually, that's one of my favorite visuals from this from this issue is that last page reveal of what he looks like now his his deformity. But um, I I mean when you go from I mean he's no Unalak. I'm not going to go that far. But when you go from Amon and Zahir and Kuvira, I just I want there to be more to him than just a local mobster who's now pissed off at Korra because he's he got turned ugly by a spirit. Well, and I think this is one of the weaknesses of discussing it, like, in a fractured way. Like, we essentially know nothing about him at this point. Right. He he could be become a very interesting villain, but, I mean, this is only, this is like the setup for the rest of the story. So I, I don't think we can really judge Takuga at this point. I like him from what we've seen so far, just in that, you know, he gets some cool... 
uh, action sequences. I like the design of him. I like his hooks. Um, and I like you, Paul. I like the the reveal of his like new mutated half spirit, half human self. Um, so I like him as far as that goes. We don't know anything about him yet, and hopefully, once we do, uh, we'll uh, yeah, we'll appreciate him more. And and I think that there is something here. We'll see if it ends up well, but um, he is a physicality of of one of the main themes of Korra, which is the conflict between the human and spirit realm so i he the whatever's happened to him beyond whatever he does with it um has pushed him into a physicalized state of what you know is going on right now in the world so i like that he's gone from sort of mob boss to that um to being something in the middle of the spirit world so we could easily be getting like and like arlo said we don't know because we're only reviewing half a third of a story right now but um this could be a good intro to some good spirit world stuff if they I, take it the right direction. I do like that they are not ignoring the complications and consequences that come from having a third spirit portal just spontaneously created in the middle of a city. Um, I'm glad that that is... I mean, it seems pretty obvious that that was something they were going to have to deal with, but I'm glad that it's not going to be like the spirit like world. under the rug. Yeah, the spirit world doesn't particularly seem pleased by the idea that there now there's another way for humans to get into the spirit world. <laughs> There's a constant push and pull between the spirit world and the human world. And even, you know, at the end of the series, when we hoped that, you know, more balance had been achieved, you know, we find out that that wasn't the case so much, which I think is pretty realistic. I feel like this is going to be uh, an eternal tug of war, maybe less intense, hopefully, as time goes on. But I think there's always going to be that kernel of conflict there. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing I like about this story, and I, I don't know why I'm a sucker for this, but like his little ending takeover of the rich guy's industry, something about the like the um, capitalist tycoon tries to use mo- like underworld elements that end up getting out of control because they're really um, total saps and weaklings. Um, is a favorite trope of mine. So I'm uh, Toguka walking in and, and taking over everything at the end was is in my wheelhouse of um, of mafia storylines. So I'm I'm there for that. Yeah. So what do we think of uh, of this guy, this Kiam guy, uh, and his plan to build an amusement park? Wanyang Kiam, that's his name. He, he's the guy that Bane kills in Dark Knight Rises, basically. That's <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, that's great. That's, that's it. That's the whole take. I'm sorry. Anyone that's, else has a better take than that? Please go ahead. <laughs> that's fantastic. No, nope, that's it. Um, but, but I mean, what, what do we think? So, so not necessarily what do we think of the character, but what do we think of this storyline? Do we think this ties in well with... Um, how Korra explored, you know, man-made civilization versus, versus um, you know, the spirituality of nature. Do we think this is a is a good direction to go in? I mean, I think it's interesting that uh, theoretically, I mean, assuming that this guy actually did own the the property that was there before the spirit before the portal exploded and the spirit wilds came in. I mean, that's an interesting angle. It, 
it sounds weird. I don't want the this to go the the route of the prequels and get all <laughs> get into uh, like uh, land rights issues and that kind of stuff. But it is just interesting to imagine that the uh, Republic City Trade Federation. Exactly, it is interesting to imagine that this guy technically legally he's probably correct. Like it it probably was not appropriate for Cora to chase him off. Um, God damn you both. I'm so sorry. I'm dying laughing because you made a prequel joke, and all I could think in my head was, I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to turf war. I'm sorry. Fuck <laughs> you both. Please continue. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm just so sick and tired of these turf wars. <laughs> um, so, so, so my question to you guys is, and, and this was another radar ping for me, but maybe Eric will be able to explain this one too. I'm not sure how I feel about Korra going into the Avatar state to scare away the businessman who, while he might have scummy businessy plans, does have a legitimate legal claim. Um, I don't know. That almost felt like like a small-scale abuse of Avatar powers. So, okay, here's my, here's my pitch on this one, but... Is there a more important aspect of the Avatar than the balance between the human and spirit worlds? And is she not facing someone who's trying to use, though not physical power, temporal power, to abuse the connection between the two? It's the very nature of the Avatar to stop that. You are not wrong, but I just feel like... <laughs> okay, so so I was... You, you, made me, you made me at least understand, theoretically, how Korra could, you know flip on a dime with her parents i get that i don't know but this really does seem like more like book one hot-headed impetuous cora um i don't know it's just like such a severe thing to do i don't know i uh i'm a little bit the opposite he didn't quite convince me in the parents thing but i'm a little i'm slightly more convinced here i also <laughs> I, I also thought that this was uh, borderline abuse of her power to do that. Um, but I, I didn't dislike it. I thought it raises interesting questions uh, because that guy could have the legal right to be on that, that property. But, um, but I, I buy Eric's thing of it is the avatar's role to, to seek balance between the human world and the spirit world. And that's explicitly what this is about. So so two things. One is that I'm really glad my Yojimbo strategy of turning you two against each other is working. <laughs> um, Finally, after all these years. Secondly, um, I actually I, I'm going to push back on the Korra is a hothead read on this. Whether or not you think it's correct that she uses the Avatar state or is in character that uses the Avatar state. At the bottom of 27, when she comes back out, Korra's face is extremely amused. She is putting on a show. This is not right. Korra actually getting angry. So fair conversation about whether or not she is choosing the right path here but this is definitely not hot cora doing something that is out of her control from anger she was she did a thing to scare a guy that she was in emotional control over based on that panel to me yeah no i mean i mean you're right i get that it's clear that you know she she's amused you know, sometimes a little avatar intimidation goes a long way i i, I don't know it's it's entirely possible that I'm I'm picking these nits because we did we have relatively little story to cover. <laughs> um, 
And, and, I, and I don't, Paul, I, I don't want you to think that I, uh, you know, by bringing that up a couple times now, I'm saying this is a bad way to discuss it, just a, a different way oh, to discuss all... the story that I am going to have to yeah. to learn. We're all, we're all so, getting our our feet under us now, so. There's a thing about this, so we, we didn't get a chance to talk about this a little. I want to talk a little more deeply, because I think after this we're going to have to go to the, the big thing. I don't think there's anything else to talk about, but we talked about the medium difference. Where you, Arlo, you brought it up, and I think it was a really good point about the difference between um, um, comics and TV. And I found that a lot of the problems I had in the writing of this were helped if I tr- did a imagining, a imagining of it in how it would have been shot instead of looking at it in panel form. Now, this is not like a reasonable thing to expect of readers, so I'm not saying this is like a defense of the writing, but... I really think that what he wrote was a film script. And when you do that, there is you need to be more intentional choosing your panels, choosing like where information's going to go. And GLY is obviously a, like very well suited to that medium. He understands comics really well, so it wasn't just that the dialogue was good, it wasn't just that the storytelling was good. He knew how to write for the medium. And I really think that when you look at a lot of these scenes that we're having problems with, if you go back and you think about them with the transitional stuff in between panels that you would get if it was a com- if it was a cartoon and not comics, these scenes would probably play somewhat differently. And I don't think he understands the difference. And I think that's a core problem here. Yeah, that, that's a really good point because I had uh, actually uh, I had just as we were discussing the scene, I had just been trying to imagine it in my head if this were a scene on the show and where I might have a problem with you know her little abusive avatar powers on the page seeing that play out on screen, I might not have been as, um, annoyed by that. So yeah, it's that, that's a very good point that he's writing this like it's a, like it's a teleplay and not like a comic script. Because if you think about it, um, comparing the avatar books to this one, um, like here, I'm just going to pull out, a random avatar book. I'll even pull out the, the first one. So, you know, I don't give uh G.L. Weinger a hero, the benefit of the doubt for having improved later on. Um, so just pulling out the first avatar book, the promise and just flipping to a random page. They're already like, just comparing the two. There's a lot more information I feel being conveyed in Avatar, not just dialogue-wise, because honestly it looks like they have about the same amount of dialogue, but there's so much visual information, and, you know, Eric, like you said, you have to be very intentional with your panel placement, and, and obviously that is something that the artist um, also strongly contributes to, um, but it, it just looks like there's much more it flows so much better from panel to panel in the avatar books than it does here where it really does seem like it's just like a, a beat to beat to beat film script that's been translated to the page. Yeah. I, I think it is very clear that he does not, he does not know how to write specifically for comics. Um, so I don't know. What yeah, do you think, which, Paul? No, I, I think that's accurate. And I, I hope that uh, given the time between each of the books that uh, like he, 
I assume the time frame means that he hasn't like written all three books. Like he he didn't just write this all in one sitting and and now he's done with it. Um, I'm hoping that he is writing each part like of a piece, and so he'll kind of he'll get the hang of it. He'll he'll learn lessons from this first book when he writes the second book, and then lessons from that when he writes the third. I hope he improves with each part, but um, yeah. I really think though. The action scenes are done pretty well. Like, and I, I feel like there's, and I'm not sure since since there's a lot less dialogue in those scenes. I'm not sure how much of this is is Co than it is DiMartino. But I mean, I feel like in the action sequences, there's a lot more like fluid motion and a lot more panel to panel movement. I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with Arlo on this, Paul. Sorry, I don't know. I think by that. I think I think that the the action scenes do display a better idea of what's going on in comics, and I think it may have something to do with Co because there's visual story. I mean, like a really good example is on 29. Um, you have uh, Takuga jumping with the hooks, and then that mm-hmm. little cut in of the hooks grabbing the thing, and then him flipping yep. over. Like that is pure visual storytelling. Like that tells you everything. You have it's not just the panels. You have everything you need to know in that yeah. stretch. No, I, I that alley fight with Tokuga I think is probably the best in the book. That's also the one that features the uh, the chi blocking, which could be difficult to get across in like static panels, as opposed to the the action beats of a an animated series. But it comes across pretty well here. But like. Both of the fight sequences later on, I I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm really hung up on the art. I'm I'm sorry, guys. And it also it also bothers me a little bit that uh, that Asami gets taken out of the fight so easily. <laughs> it bothers me that that uh, we get to see her shock one person with her her glove, and then she's taken out by a waterbender, and uh, Korra has to go and save her. Well, sure. maybe her, maybe her glove got short circuited. Okay. Water does need <laughs> electricity, it's true. All right, sure. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, okay, I wanted to talk about that, but I guess there's there's no there's no delaying the inevitable. Um, I, I, I'm going to back up and let people who are have more to say about this say stuff. Well, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how much more I have to say about it. So we we don't have to go deep into this we don't have to get as in-depth as the people at uh fundamentals did which i'll I'll include a link for people that want to read that massive discourse that they have over this and other issues but i was initially uncomfortable and and like arlo and i both mentioned earlier it started with the the breakdown at her parents when they when she came out to her parents and and uh uh I can't, why can't I remember his name? What's her dad's name? Uh, Tonrock. Tonrock. When, when he was like, just be careful about who you tell or whatever. And she immediately blew up. That was the starting point, but that leads into the whole, uh, the entire issue of, of her having to come out at all of them having to come out and, and address this. I completely understand the, why DiMartino decided to do that. In fact, in fact, he has stated, I, 
can't remember where I saw it, but I read an interview with him where he has explicitly said he thought long and hard about this, and he decided that he and Brian both discussed it and decided that they felt it was important to show uh, their their like you know powerful headstrong character that this character that people love having to face the same difficulties that some of the readers and viewers would end up facing. So I, I understand the impetus to write that into the story, but I was slightly uncomfortable with the fact that apparently the world of Avatar is just as uncomfortable with LGBTQ whatever uh, as we are in the real world. And I, I kind of, I just, I kind of didn't want it to be this big of an issue. I kind of wanted it to just sort of happen. And like we see her friends, their reactions to it. That's kind of what I wanted. Uh, and I didn't really want it to go much beyond that. So I can't really, uh, so like you, Paul, I understand the impetus for wanting to write this and I, uh, to write this into the story i think it's a totally valid thing to do and because i am not someone who has ever had to deal with you know coming out my sexuality has never uh been an issue in my life um i've never had to think about it because i'm, I'm a straight white guy um so i can't speak to how that would play to me if i did have those life experiences but i'm kind of with you on this one in that I just really uh, it's not necessarily the handling of it so much that bothers me as the fact that we have to have the, this story at all. But again, I mean, like he said, you know, that this is, you know, I, I know that we're we're three grown men discussing this, but the, the, the show and the book are meant for younger audience members. So it's entirely understandable that he would want to convey that kind of story to a younger audience. So, but just from my, um, you know, from my privileged viewpoint, I kind of groaned a little bit of the inside that we had to have this be part of the story. And, and that, that groaning on the inside is probably as far as it would have gone for me. Like I probably just would have been like, I kind of wish we could have just moved past this and not made this the story that we had to tell. Um, but like I said, then I went out and I read other people, specifically the thing that I'll link, and they went much, much, much deeper into it. And uh, I, I don't know if it's worth us discussing any of the stuff they bring up, but like to to put, to really boil it down, to oversimplify their issues, they felt that the introduction of um, same-sex bias or whatever into the world of Avatar was was uh, was out of character for the world of Avatar. They thought they felt that that was um, counter to what had been depicted in the series before, and they thought that it was really problematic to introduce elements like the fact that the Fire Nation under Fire Lord Sozin. Uh, were interring people or, or like arresting people in the middle of the night, apparently for having same sex relations. And, uh, and they were also super upset at the notion that, uh, avatar Kiyoshi was, uh, apparently bisexual and she lived 230 years and was a, a force of freaking nature. And she never managed to, uh, affect any change on 
the cultural perception of same-sex relationships. So, so, uh, so I, sorry, Eric. Um, just real quick, I, uh, I I have to say the piece or the pieces that you're talking about by Griffin and Kylie on fundamentals are very thoughtful, very interesting, very compelling, very much worth reading. We've been doing this show for like two years. I have never thought that hard about the uh, the societal structures of the world of Avatar. So right. it's it's a very interesting read. Um, I, and again, because in all likelihood, because of the life experience that I have, or I should say haven't had, I, that stuff never entered my mind while reading this. Um, I was not uh, offended by, you know, the Gestapo-like qualities of Fire Lord Sozin. However, I have to say that page where, you know, I, well, I, t- I have two issues with this. One is that Kaya all of a sudden, I don't know, I feel like she gets Dumbledored in that, oh, wait, <laughs> she, was, she, she, was, she was gay the whole time and um, gives this lengthy info dump. And then... The, for me, by far, the worst part of the book is, you know, uh, for most of its history, the Fire Nation was tolerant too, but then Fire Lord Sozin took power. He decreed that same-sex relationships were criminal. Cut to Korra. That guy was the worst. <laughs> that is just that. I think I, I actually physically cringed when I read that. Yeah, that was that was a bad cut in. Whatever else I'm going to say, that was bad. <laughs> it was <cut> bad. <laughs> so I, I will I will shut up now, Eric. What's on your mind? No, okay. So I want to. So there's there are maybe three or four different ways of approaching this, and I actually my concern is conflating them because I actually think there's a bunch of stuff happening here. So one is, did we need to go to this story at all? Like, is this the is this an approach we should have taken, or was a approach where these th- this kind of bias doesn't exist in the avatar verse better okay so that i have opinions on but i also feel like i'm not the i'm never going to be the audience for this story and i can't speak to what someone in these situations needs and it's also different the, there's a discussion on those articles about whether this type this type of story was helpful or not for people who are affected by bias themselves and it's split so i think it's worth noting that there is is a split on is this helpful because it's it's speaking to an experience that people are having, or are we better to imagine a world that is better and that is more hopeful? And that's a discussion that I can't get involved in because I'm never going to be affected by that. So um, that's axis one is that is like, is this the right story choice period? Um, number two is, um, is this in canon with the story? Like, does this make sense in the universe, in the avatar universe? There's a lot of discussion on that about whether it makes sense or not. I'm I'm less swayed on that and that I just don't think it's there. I mean, the fact of the matter is that homosexuality did not exist in the Avatar verse on screen for all of it. And the reason being that when they tried to make Korra and Asami be a couple, they weren't even allowed to do anything more than hold hands like they were dictated against it. Right. So this is a world where it has been excluded. Um, so there's a vacuum to fill on that. There, yeah. It just it's that information i don't think is there there's a lot of really interesting discussions there but i don't think there's one answer on this one i don't think you can say here is how this this culture would have treated this because they had to exclude it all so and i think that counts towards like kaya being kind of dumbledored to be fair unlike jk rowling nothing was nothing was stopping jk rowling from describing who dumbledore was nickelodeon was in fact stopping yeah all of this 
on this. So, okay, so that's number two, is does this make sense in canon? I think that's a question mark. It's a discussion. Discussion three that I think is really interesting on those articles, and I think is the best part of those articles, is does it make sense culturally, or are they overly westernizing the cultures by making this in there? I can't speak to that, but I think it's a really fascinating conversation, and I would recommend reading the articles for that, because... I think that is something we take for granted, that all cultures are the same. They are not. All cultures are not us, and we shouldn't westernize everything. So that's really worthwhile. I don't really know whether the information they have is correct or not because I did not check their sources. It's something I don't have a lot of information on, but I think it's a really cool way of looking at this. They had, And uh, finally – oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say there were a lot of links in there, and I, I didn't follow all of them because seriously, I, I misspoke when I said 10,000 pages, but not by much. Um <laughs> But they, there uh-huh. were a lot, there were links in there to uh, pieces on um, like homosexuality and same sex relations in uh, in Asian history and culture and mythology and all that and and how some of yeah Eric like you said they were talking about how they uh, Brian and Mike drew from so much Asian culture and mythology for the creation of this world. And then when they, it came time to introduce same sex couples, they went full Western in there. But anyways. Yeah. And so I think that's a really valid way of discussing it. And finally, the fourth one is separate from whether or not it's in Canon, separate from whether or not it's makes sense in culture, whether this is the right story or not, what is the execution of it? So those are the four ways I think you can approach it. And I think it's a little dangerous to wrap them up too tightly in critiquing them because I actually think they all work slightly independently of each other in this. Um, I can't speak to whether this is the right story or not, um, although I understand why he did it based on his descriptions. I um, I don't agree that it's not in canon, although I think there's some interesting discussions to have there. Culturally, that's really fascinating to me. Execution-wise, I think it's a mixed bag. I don't think it's actually a train wreck execution. I think that Arlo saw the train wreck part of it in that he believes rather noted the this guy is the worst part is definitely (laughs) the worst as far as it goes. But I also think there's a lot of really interesting stuff character wise going on between Korra and Asami in terms of their varying views of how to approach this. Specifically, there's one thing that I really like that comes out of this, which is that Korra bulldozes Asami's feelings about how fast she wants to come out on this. So I don't want to lose those moments like that because I think that that's actually a really relevant piece is that Korra in her Korra-ness takes away whether Asami is ready to talk about this. I, I will I will say the highlight of this book for me um, are the quiet moments between just Korra and Asami, like page pages 13 through 15, where it's them talking about when asking each other when they first knew how they felt about the other or whatever. Uh, any opportunity where the two of them are just talking to each other about each other, I, I feel like that's where this book shines. Um, to the point where I almost wish part one had just been that. Like I, I, I kind of wish book one had just been their time in the spirit world together, and we hadn't gotten into the back to the real world, back to Republic City until maybe part two, but. Uh, yeah, I, I wish the three weeks in the spirit world hadn't been sort of montaged away from us because the the just the dialogue between the two of them as they're learning how to hang out with each other just by themselves is the best part for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think those were I think the execution of those two was really good. And also on the artwork, Irene Ko can draw Cora and Asami kissing forever. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, just it's. 
every anything that you would have hoped that you did not get at Nickelodeon. Any any Korosami shipper who was angry they didn't get to see them kiss, Irene Co is there for you to give you the best possible awesomeness of that. So thumbs up there. But and also thank you for letting me go on my weird dissertation about breaking up how we talk about this. I've I've been thinking about how to address this since you sent the articles to me, Paul, earlier today. Um, and I, it took me a while to sort out that the reason I was having a hard time talking about this was because I think there's a lot of things, there's a lot of parallel crap yeah. involved in this. Yeah. So I don't mean crap in like a dismissive way. I really shouldn't have used the word crap there, but there's a lot of parallel stuff going on there. You're crap, Eric. I am crap. I am a shitlord, and I just proved it. So. <laughs> uh, Darth right. shittiest. <laughs> I want to say though that I am still excited for the next one. There, I'm oh, not. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I am more positive than you two were on this overall. I don't disagree that the problems, like I see the problems that y'all had with this and other people have had. I, I don't disagree that they're there. Um, there was enough here that I I like that I'm into it. There were a lot of little things. The, the some Mako and um, oh my god, how am I forgetting his brother's name? Bolin. Bolin. Bolin stuff. In fact, Bolin gets maybe the most boss moment of the book when he turns his rock into a lava blade and oh, cuts yeah. off. Yeah. Books. So there's, and then, then it followed up with him, uh, his brother calling him partner and the smile on his face. There's some really good moments. scattered. I, I love Bolin so much. I find his arc completely fascinating from where he started to where he is right now. I mean, I don't remember the character rankings that we did, but I have to imagine Bolin is right up there yeah. for me in terms of core characters. We, we, we can't walk out of this without mentioning uh, Julie, uh, if only because there's a noted absence of Varric. Julie yes. is front and center. Uh, she's she's dealing with the the uh, evacuees that are pouring back into the city now, um, which means hey maybe maybe <laughs> I don't know maybe she can take a more active role in the story. Maybe maybe she'll have something to do here, but maybe she can. Do the thing. Do the thing, yeah. But where the <laughs> hell's Varric, man? Where He's off dodging, plotting somewhere. Dodging the hard work. Well, well that's true. true. Varric was like, it's time for a honeymoon, and then went by himself. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I hope I hope I'm, that I hope when he comes I hope he comes back next book and she's like, How was the honeymoon, dear? Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> By the way, my favorite moment in this book to talk about something good was page thirty six when uh Bolin um is talking to Ping in the back seat and <laughs> he's like chatting both of the brothers up about how he used to be they used to be triad members and how he's really proud they're cops now. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. That was the comedy didn't always work as well in this, I think, because he doesn't know how to write for comics quite as well. But that scene was pretty tops in my yeah. opinion. Maybe the best single page of dialogue in the entire book. I knew these guys when they were just a couple of nobodies. Never imagined they'd become big time cops. Makes me proud. Oh, thanks, Ping. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. All right. So I think that's everybody. I don't. I really. I mean, we get the Air Kids but not much of them. We get a tiny little bit of Tenzin. We mentioned that Kaya was there for uh, exposition, but... Uh, uh, we, we see Lynn briefly. Very briefly, yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I kind of hope we get some more Tenzin, because I think I had a problem in the final season of Korra with how I felt he 
his relationship with Cora, and I I understand this is the moment like where you know she's outgrowing her watcher, right? Basically, this is the moment like you know this is the season before Giles moves back to London. Right. I I, I get it, but I don't know. I would like a little bit more between the two of them because I felt like I I didn't really get like closure. I didn't get like a note of like a a good end note on their relationship. Yeah, I could. I mean, also Tenzin is the best character in the show, so I could <laughs> I could go for more Tenzin purely based on that. But I actually hadn't thought about that, Arlo. That's a really good call. That we didn't quite get the same level of um of wrap up on the two of them that we did on a lot of other people. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I just saw earlier today that the the next free comic book day, which I can't remember when that's coming up, but uh, in May, it's in May. There's going to be a a Cora free comic book day thing that comes out and it's going to be, I don't know anything about it, but it's going to have Cora teaming up with Milo going on a mission with Milo. So nice. Also written by DiMartino, I think. Cool. All right. All right. Anyways, uh, that's, I guess that's it. There's not much else we can say. Um, we went longer than I thought we were going to considering this is just part one of three, but, uh, yeah, so it's an experiment. We'll see when we're a year from now, when or six months from now, when we finish with the third part of this, we'll see uh, how it all comes together. But uh, as of as of right now, I'm I'm a little more down on it than I wanted to be, but it's it's still new Cora, so I'm excited. I'm looking forward to the next part. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm right there with you, Paul. This really, you know. It, to, to me, this is easily the weakest of these official canonical Avatar books have been. I know, I know they had some Avatar comics before the canon continuations that looked not great, so those were probably worse. But compared to uh, the Yang and Guri hero stuff, I feel like this is noticeably weaker. But I, I'm, I, I'm really hoping that it uh, comes along. A little bit more that it, you know, DiMartino and Co. both grow into their roles, because um, I mean, I want nothing more than for this comic book to be awesome. Yeah. Marlo, you, you you mentioned that it's, it does, isn't as good as the other ones, but it's better than some of the other stuff. And I think it is worth remembering that this still feels canonical to me. Yes. Like it feels like I, I mean, I would say right now I'm still more interested than I was in season two. Of course, so it both feels canonical and is not the worst Korra I've read. But, like you said, it's not the the masterpiece that um, Yang and Kurohiro pulled off at this point. Which I guess we both, we all knew. I mean, I think I think we knew we were getting into this. So that, that part of this might just be getting to understand exactly what that meant yeah. to lose them. I mean, yeah, Yang and Kurohiro, that's that's a high bar. We, we lucked out early on with that. So yeah. it's a tough it, act to follow. And Korra also ended really strong. Yeah. The Kavira season's also a really tough act to follow. So we're getting both the first Korra since Korra's best season and the first comic post um, Yanger hero. So that's a bad one-two punch yeah. you have to take. So anyways, uh, well, that was that. <laughs> um, like I said, the next volume is scheduled to come out sometime in January. Uh, so that's less than a month away for us. I don't know 
uh, if we'll jump right in as soon as that comes out or if we're going to give it a little distance from this before we review. I don't know. But uh, we will be back with a new episode at some point in the not-too-distant future to talk about part two of Turf Wars. Um, in the meantime, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website, theavatarreturns.com. Uh, links will also be posted on our parent show site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show on iTunes to make sure you never miss another exciting episode. And while you're there, please be a hero and rate us or write us a review. That helps spread the word. If you'd like to contact us, uh, please send your correspondence, care of Monkey Yahtzee, uh, at tarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always find us on social media, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash tarpodcast. And on Twitter, I'm at haunt1013. Eric is at salon, that's S A A L O N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. And uh, until next time, please remember vote Ryko. He'll wallop tyranny with a knockout blow. Time around.